I forgot something, which is going to lead really nicely into my first point. Believe it or not, I forgot to get my remote here. Believe it or not, at times I forget things. No. And so I start, I've started through the years to cope with this. Jeff and I, as two fellow <laughs> ADD brothers, have talked about this strategy. I've set, I set reminders for everything. I set alarms. I set prompts to help me keep on track with whatever it is that I need to do. And so I have this prompt that I, I made a, a commitment to uh, many years ago when I first came here that sometime in February, I would try to preach at least one sermon on marriage. And so February becomes this kind of mental prompt. Okay, remember what you, what you said you wanted to do. And the reason for that is growing up, I heard a lot of great teaching on so many important things, but it seemed to me then and looking back as well, that this was a subject that was neglected quite a bit to sometimes disastrous results. We talked about a lot of important issues and doctrines, but not what the Bible teaches, which is a lot about this really important fundamental relationship. So I want to talk about marriage this morning and in the, in the interest of mutually building each other up, letting the body build the body. Um, Adrian and I put together a, a, um, a place for you to add your wisdom, your godly insights, your experience on what makes a strong and scriptural marriage. And we've all had different experiences, different times studying the word, that have led us to different insights. So I want to encourage you to write what, what is at the heart of strong marriages as you've seen them, or what has really helped you, or do you see that's important to help others in marriage, and put it on one of these little pink slips out in the back in the foyer, or one of the ones Adrian handed you. And um, we're gonna, they're gonna be for public consumption, so just know that going in. That we're gonna, you don't have to put your name on it, but we're gonna put them on that sheet out there so that we can all share each other's wisdom. But I wanna get to the heart of the matter with this lesson. And isn't it the way it goes with things as you grow as a Christian? You start to realize the things you need to hear most, the things you need to work on most, are the most basic things ever. You know, like we want to get into these complicated ideas, and sometimes that can help too, but it's really going back to faith. It's really going back to our prayer life, and it's really going back to love. As we think about love and marriage, something that I think a lot of us at times have found out is that whenever we tied the knot and had those ties that bind and should bring us such perfect unity, at times it instead becomes this tug of war battle. You know, where one person is pulling this way, one person's this way, and it's like, well, you know, why do we always do the thing that 
you want to do? And why is it that, uh, you, that I do all of these chores and you don't take care of that? And why is it that we visited your family 17 times and mine once? And why is it, you know, all of these different issues that can become like, I got to look out for me. I got I to gotta make sure that I am setting things right. You don't want to be a doormat, you know? And there is definitely a place in marriage for speaking up and speaking the truth in love and, and having these conversations with each other. But that's not the heart of the thing. That's not what builds a good marriage. Because if everybody's pulling all the time, you're going to rip the thing apart. Or you're going to just decide to, you know what, let's leave that tug of war there. And I'm going to face this way, you face that way, and we're just going to have our own separate lives, but we'll live in the same house. That's not how marriage works according to God. And the thing that we find in this subject, like in pretty much every subject in life, is that the game changer in marriage goes back to the basics of the gospel. Turn with me to a familiar passage for many of us, Philippians chapter 2. One of the great Christological passages in Scripture, a great song or poem about what Jesus did for us. And it, says, it starts by saying in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, Jesus is God, and he was living there in heaven, reigning as the creator of everything. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be tugged at, to be held onto. I am not given any ground from me. I've got this side of the rope, and I'm looking out for mines. No. That's not where Jesus lived. He didn't count it something to be grasped, but did the exact opposite. Emptied himself. Emptied. Emptied what? Emptied himself. That's everything that he is, everything that he was. No, he didn't stop being God, but he gave up all of his privileges and he came down and suffered and served. It goes on to say, he took the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And you know what happens when you take that humbling, lowering approach? The results are surprising. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. He made himself low, God made him high. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The Bible describes this attitude Jesus has in, in a lot of different ways, these actions he took in a lot of different ways. But the most common way that it's described is by this simple word, love. This is love. To empty ourselves and not grasp. Whenever Adrian and I were first married, we loved each other a lot. We 
thought the world of each other. We, we could not wait for three years to finally go, you know, a month living in the same town, much less now finally getting to be together in the same home all the time. And yet, what we found is super high highs that year and super low lows. It was a roller coaster that rivaled the best at Cedar Point. It was crazy. And I know not everybody's marriage is, was the same way, but this was our first year. Was, we loved each other so much, but we were so passionate. And we would fight, and then we would make up, and we would take care of each other and have a big thing. And then we had to adjust to something else about how you live with another person. And that's not where your socks go. And you don't put your towels there and, you know, hey, I, whatever, you know, I don't even know what they, the issues were. But, you know, there's these issues, many of them much bigger and much more difficult and challenging than, than some of those light things I was just bringing up. But what the scripture says, Paul gives this promise as he introduces the famous love chapter of 1 Corinthians 13. The last phrase in the previous chapter is, I will show you a still more excellent way. And I want to talk this morning about the most excellent way to live. The most excellent way to build a marriage. In Colossians 3 verse 14 we read, And above all these, all these other attributes he said, Put on love, which binds everything together, in perfect harmony. I wonder about this phrase, perfect harmony. Perfect harmony. That's not what, what we were experiencing that first year in that roller coaster. I mean, it looked anything like harmony about, you know, a fifth of the time as we're going through that. Maybe we just needed an asterisk on this and and to say, you know, not valid for relationships involving in-laws, a shared bank account, division of household chores, differing views on raising children, and different needs for intimacy. You know, like one of those, one of those commercials for some medication that you see, and the disclaimer is longer than the, the sales point. Is that, what, is that what we need to say? Yes, perfect harmony, I get it, I get it, I get it, God, but it's not in marriage, right? That's not what you meant. There is no harmony to be had just from love in marriage. Perfect harmony? Complete harmony? Maybe we should just say, valid for all relationships except marriage. That is not what God says. And that is not the truth. The truth is in the verse. Put, a, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love. Boy, we use that word in a million different ways, don't we? We talk about loving chocolate, loving the Wolverines, loving our spouses, loving our children, loving the Lord. We say, God so loved us. This statement that we just read about love and harmony really holds something powerful if we pay attention to the word that's used for love. And I want to suggest that maybe we're missing something about love. 
maybe this area of life where we talk about love more than anywhere else is where we need to understand it best, where we've most gone astray. Jesus and the apostles talk a lot about love. And if, if you've never heard about this word that they use for love, then you might misunderstand what I'm going to be talking about and thinking I'm talking about agape love whenever I say agape love. This is a, something I thought about years ago, this, this distinction that we sometimes have, where when we hear love, we have this picture sometimes, especially in romance and in marriage, of this goopy kind of love, like, like the kind of thing that shows up in a, in a Disney movie and Asher goes like this. We went to Disney on ice with a bunch of people and there was half of, half of the beginning parts, he was just going like this because he could not handle all the mushy stuff about love and, and oh, he's so dreamy and the first kiss of love and all of these ideas and you know, all the girls go, ooh. And you know, we say to each other, Adrian and I used to literally, we didn't say that, you know, no, you hang up first, but, but we literally didn't want to hang up with each other, you know, and, and it's, it's a wonderful thing, and it's a biblical thing, you know. I almost preached this on Song of Songs, which is a Bible book full of love poetry, but there is something we need to get that's much more to the heart of the issue than the goopy kind of love, and that's agape love, not a goopy love. And the difference between these two is defined in two different Greek words. There's eros, which is a goopy love. Eros, the, the root, the Greek word that's at the root of our word erotic, but it isn't just about, in, in Greek, that sensual, physical pleasure. It included all of, all of the things of romance. And it was a favorite word of the Greeks. In fact, the Greeks talked about eros way more than they talked about agape. They were not very, I mean, this was not an often used word. Eros is, is such a wonderful, magical, amazing thing. And yet that word, that Greek word, the Bible's written in Greek, the New Testament. That Greek word is not used once in the entire Bible. And instead, God chose to dust off this old vanilla word, agape, and to give it a different meaning, a richer meaning than the Greeks had ever painted it with by using it to describe God's love for us, Jesus' love for us, God's, Jesus' love for God and God's love for gee, the Father's love for the Son, the Son's love for the Father, and the love that we are to have for one another, including in marriage. Eros says, I'm intoxicated by your best attributes. Maybe there's a time when that just, oh, those butterflies are so wonderful. I'm intoxicated by your best attributes. And I don't even see all the other things about you yet. But agape is where perfect harmony and sustainable commitment and love comes in. Agape says, I am committed to your best interest. I've come to see you're not just your best attributes. There's a lot to you, just like there's a lot to me. 
but I love you. I love you like Jesus loved me. I'm committed to that. And so I'm committed to what is going to help you, what is going to bless you, what is going to serve you. What do you need? What's going to bring wholeness and richness and blessing and, and health to you? What a difference there is between these two words and these two ideas. Defining love, this agape, I've always thought of it kind of like defining some attribute that's kind of hard to, to see, hard to describe, like um, defining sweet. How do you define sweet to somebody who doesn't know what sweet is? Talking to an alien and you're trying to explain what sweet is, what the word sweet means. The only way I know how to define it is to describe the things that are sweet. What does it taste like? What does it look like? You know, honey is sweet. Haagen-Dazs ice cream is sweet. Anna just made a, a lemon tart the other, uh, yesterday. That's so sweet and good. And I'm back on keto, so I couldn't have very much of it. We know sweet by saying, here's what it looks like. Here's how we know love. The Bible doesn't really define love. It doesn't say agape love means this. Instead, it says, here's what it looks like. It says in 1 John 4.10, in this is love. Here's what it is. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Here it is. What a powerful truth. Here's love. It's not in what we did. We learn love by looking to the one that loved us first. Not that we loved God. See, God loved us when we were not loving him. It's a part of the core idea of agape. We love our enemies with agape love. I don't have brotherly affection for my enemies, that Philadelphia, that brotherly love. That's something I have for you guys. But I have agape for the people that hate me, for the people that hurt my family. I have to. I have to work on that constantly. And that's how God loves us. When we are least lovable, he loves us. He loved us and sent. That and sent. You start to see. You want to know what love is. You see what God did. Not, just, not how God feels. God feels tremendous love for you. But you see it and what he did. He sent Jesus and Jesus took the wrath of God up on our evil. You know. A part of love is to hate the destructive attributes that bring harm on those you love. And God has wrath against sin. But Jesus took all of that and all of the chastisement for our sins, as Isaiah 53 puts it, upon himself. Be a propitiation. Take away, that's what propitiation means. 
He took it away. He took it upon himself. And then the next verse goes from God and Jesus to our responsibility. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. This isn't just a task for God. We have to think about what it means to love like God. We often, whenever we start talking about marriage, we often go to Ephesians 5, and we focus on the end of the chapter, which is really beautiful and important. And we've talked about that a lot here, and we'll talk about it again, starting in verse 22 down to the end of the chapter. But maybe where we should start is at the beginning of the chapter, where God says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Love like that. Clement of Alexandria said something really shocking in a way. He said, we have a practice Practice being God, that that's what Christians do. Of course, we are so far from God. We are so far from having his power and his wisdom. And that's not what he was talking about. He was saying, practice thinking like God. Practice living like God, loving like God. Prioritizing the things of God. Be imitators of God. Right before the passage that we, we often go to in verse 22 about wives submitting to husbands, husbands being the head of the wife, loving the church as Christ loved the church. The verse before that, verse 21, says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We have different roles, but the beginning is loving one another as God and Christ loved us, submitting ourselves to the needs and and blessings and desires of each other. How did God love us? What is love? Love sent. Love gave. Love came. Love died. Love acts. Love constantly finds ways act for another. And love doesn't just, just act, it acts first. You know, this is what Jesus did. This is what God did. It, it, he took the step into the gap between us. This is our responsibility now as we're trying to love like God does is to step into the awkward silence between us whenever there's a problem and to act first. To act first to build that bridge of reconciliation, if that's what's needed. To act first to bring the good thing. The tiny, tiny, unimportant ways, you know, pick her favorite ice cream instead of yours, you know? 
And in the really big, hard, awful, painful ways that make you look at yourself and not like what you see, that make you have to give something up that was your dearest dream for what your marriage was going to be. But it's not the necessary thing for the Bible. It's just something you love. And you give it up because love sacrifices, love blesses, and love serves. Love acts first. It initiates. It doesn't say, well, why would I do that? For him or for her, she didn't do it for me. No, it says, I let go of grasping and empty. I step into the space between us. And love acts first regardless. Romans 5, we're breaking out all of the Bible's greatest hits here today. Romans 5, verses 7 to 10 says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10 says, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. When we were enemies, when we were not good, when we had Little to nothing to stand on, to argue for us in our favor. Jesus came, God sent, Jesus died. And, and what Paul does here is he leverages that action that happened when we were at our worst to give us confidence for where we stand with God now that we are in his favor. If God did that while, while you hated God, while you were living in open rebellion against him, if God did that when you were totally doing the wrong thing, how much more now can he build reconciliation and oneness with you? He's acted in that way. And so what we see here is that if we can step into that, in that moment of conflict, in that moment of crisis, if we could step into that space in that point, we can build something that we can leverage to give confidence for the future. You know, this is what she did for me after I did that to her. Man, I got to look in the mirror and see what I can do better. So it leads to this question, simple question. What can I do? Simple question to get really good at asking. Asking yourself, asking your spouse, asking everybody. What can I do? Last, I think it was several years ago, uh, Kim Ross sent me an email with an example and I, I find it so powerful that I want to read a little bit of it to you. It's a little bit of a long reading, but this, this uh, story by author Richard Paul Evans about his own marriage. said, I was standing in the shower of the Buckhead Atlanta Ritz-Carlton yelling at God that marriage was wrong and I couldn't do it anymore. As much as I hated the idea of divorce, the pain of being together was just too much. I couldn't figure out why marriage with Carrie was so hard. Deep down, I knew that Carrie was a good person, and I was a good person. So why couldn't we get along? Why, couldn't, why wouldn't she change? 
As he prayed and cried in the shower, he realized he couldn't change her. But he could change. One thing we can control, right? But one thing we can change. He could change himself. So the next morning, he rolled over in bed and asked his wife, how can I make your day better? He says, Harry looked at me angrily. What? How can I make your day better? You can't, she said. Why are you asking that? Because I mean it, I said. I just want to know what I can do to make your day better. He looked at me cynically. You want to do something? Go clean the kitchen. Familiar <laughs> sentiment. She likely expected me to get mad. Instead, I just nodded. Okay. I got up and I cleaned the kitchen. The next day, I asked the same thing. What can I do to make your day better? Her eyes narrowed. Clean the garage. I took a deep breath. I already had a busy day, and I knew she had made the request in spite. I was tempted to blow up at her. Instead, I said, okay. I got up and for the next two hours, cleaned the garage. Carrie wasn't sure what to think. Next morning came, what can I do to make your day better? Nothing, she said. You can't do anything. Please stop saying that. I'm sorry, I said, but I can't. I made a commitment to myself. What can I do to make your day better? Why are you doing this? Because I care about you and our marriage. So he kept asking, and, and then on the second week, her eyes welled up. He said, please stop asking me that. You're not the problem. I am. I'm hard to live with. I don't know why you stay with me. I gently lifted her chin until she was looking in my eyes. It's because I love you. I said, what can I do to make your day better? He said, I should be asking you that. You should, I said. <laughs> but not now. Right now, I need to be the change. You need to know how much you mean to me. She put her head against my chest. I'm sorry, I've been so mean. I love you, I said. I love you, she replied. What can I do to make your day better? She looked at me sweetly. Can we maybe just spend some time together? I smiled. I'd like that. He says, I continued asking for more than a month, and things did change. The fighting stopped. Then Carrie began asking, what do you need from me? How can I be a better wife? The walls between us fell. We began having meaningful discussions on what we wanted from life and how we could make each other happier. No, we didn't solve all our problems. I can't say that we never fought again, but the nature of our fights changed. Not only were they becoming more and more rare, they lacked the energy they'd had once had. We deprived them of oxygen. We didn't just have it in us to hurt each other anymore. Carrie and I have now been married for more than 30 years, and I not only love my wife, I like her. I like being with her. I crave her. I need her. Many of our differences have become strengths, and the others don't really matter. We've learned how to take care of each other, and more importantly, we've gained the desire to do so. 
Real love is not to desire a person, but to truly desire their happiness, sometimes even at the expense of our own happiness. And I'm grateful that even now, decades later, every now and then, one of us will still roll over and say, what can I do to make your day better? Being on either side of that question is something worth waking up for. Power of a godly marriage, of a marriage where love is at the center. Going back to our disclaimer at the beginning, uh, what if we flipped this into a call for agape love? You know, I listed all these things, you know, not, not valid where there's in-laws, shared bank account, division of household chores, differing views on raising children, differing needs for intimacy. And this is just a list of a lot of the issues that come up in a marriage, very common issues. But what if we started just asking questions about those things, whatever it is in your marriage? What can I do? What can I do for your parents. In-laws can be this divide, but actually, Ruth is a great example of this. Actually, we need to be, if we're one flesh now, then I have responsibility for my wife's parents just as much as my own. To honor them and to seek to bless them and to seek to bless the relationship between my kids and them and my wife and them and myself and them. What can I do to give you more security? If money is an issue, think about the needs and the desires. There's things underneath. There's deep philosophies and needs that come from, you know, some people more have this leaning towards needing freedom and other people have more this need for security. But what can we give to each other? How can we support each other's needs and deep longings and desires in our hearts? And think, look at 1 Timothy 5.8 and, and the picture of Jesus giving freedom and security. Think about the division of labor. Sometimes this becomes, you know, a bigger issue than just who's going to take out the garbage, but a sense of the person's value and how we really think about each other. What can I do to lighten your load? Oh, I already have so much on my plate, though. I already have, you know what, read Galatians 6, 2 through 5. What can I do? carry your burden. Kids and parenting can be an issue. And it can go deep. And it can, again, have these differing perspectives. But if we can start to learn to ask, what can I do to better understand where you're coming from on this issue? And why this priority is so important to you when it doesn't seem that way to me? How can I better understand what you're seeing here? What you, what you think our kids need? The relationship you want to have with them. James 1.19 is all about being slow to speak and quick to hear. Slow to anger and quick to listen. Or in physical intimacy. This can be a problem in, in, in couples, often is, in, in a marriage. Um, what can, instead of thinking about how we... We each have needs, and, and my needs are my needs being taken care of, or you're demanding too much from me, or whatever it is. We get this picture in verses 3 through 5 of 1 Corinthians 7 of sharing our body. We're one flesh now, so my body doesn't belong just to me anymore. 
And so I can ask, how can I serve you better, your needs, your desire for emotional intimacy, for physical intimacy? What do you need? We can learn to ask those things. Then the asterisks, the asterisk or asterisks? <laughs> it's spelled asterisk. The asterisk, whatever it's spelled, just goes away. It just disappears because the word of God stands on its own. The word of God is true. And true agape that imitates the Lord binds everything together in perfect harmony. Isn't that the marriage that we want to have? Isn't that the marriage we want our kids to see, that we want the world to see? Jesus held up this picture of marriage as something that tells us about who he is to us. Paul in Ephesians 5 says, this is a great mystery, but we're actually not talking about marriage. We're talking about Christ and the church at the end of that passage. In other words, the love that, and the bond and the oneness that marriage points to is beyond this world. It's a security. It's a peace. It's a care that we receive like no other because Jesus is our husband. Jesus is the groom and we are his people, the bride, that when we come to him, we find the one who is faithful always count honorable to the end and will deliver us into eternity and all of its blessings 